everyone, and welcome back to the Weird Biology Show podcast. I'm Sean, your favorite local worm dealer. Best worms in the tri-state area. And I'm Dan, your regional planarian kingpin. And fellas, we got a special guest today, Dr. One R. Pagan, lecturer of pharmacology and the bald scientist. I know I'm a bald scientist, but he is <laughs> the bald scientist of the bald scientist podcast. Dr. One, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> So you actually brought us this paper today, and I'm very excited about it, because these are flatworms on cocaine. <laughs> that they are. <laughs> and so you mentioned to me that this was actually like a, a pretty influential paper for your, your own research. You, you study pharmacology and drug interactions with animals. Yeah, I actually used the flatworm planarians as an animal model of, uh, in pharmacology, neuropharmacology particularly the pharmacology of abused uh, drugs. Interesting. And you also have a book that's recently come out as well, and we'll talk about that a bit later, about really just diving into the entire realm of animal intoxication, both in nature, in the laboratories, where alcohol and psychoactive drugs come from in nature. You you kind of touch on it all, and I'm, I'm really excited to discuss that with you today. Uh, thank you. So today's paper is... Descriptions and Quantification of Cocaine Withdrawal Signs in Planaria by Rafa and Desai. Now, these are both uh, Philadelphia locals. They went to Temple. And uh, I'm super excited to kind of talk about this paper with you all. Um, I've been more proud to be a Philadelphia. <laughs> studying worms addicted to cocaine. Well, uh, and as you know, I'm Philadelphia adjacent. Yeah. I'm talking to you from Westchester University in Pennsylvania. Practically neighbors. Yep. So, One, as I understand it, like the reason that the planarians were chosen is because they're just kind of a really great model species for, for drug interaction? Well, actually, not really. It's only relatively recently that planarians are beginning to get popular in pharmacology. The cliff notes of the story is that <laughs> I was a non-traditional student. I went back for my PhD at 35. I did my bachelor's and master's at the University of Puerto Rico, but I worked between the bachelor's and the master's. And I was working uh, after the master's. Uh, I was married. Uh, I had my first two kids. Uh, my wife helped. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. And uh, I always wanted to do my PhD, all right, mm -hmm. but I needed to work. So uh, my mentors at uh, uh, the school that I was working with, it, it, it at, sorry, working at, it's the Universidad Central del Caribe in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. It's a fully accredited medical school. I was a technician in biochemistry there. They had a collaborator, collaborator, Dr. George Hess at Cornell University. He frequently went to Puerto Rico, I suspect, for the weather and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, things like that. But he actually actively recruited students from Puerto Rico to bring to Cornell. I was one of them. Lucky you. When, uh, yeah, <laughs> w w yeah, super lucky because when I uh, applied to Cornell and I was uh, accepting everything, I told my wife, well, it's freaking Cornell, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I got a, a nice scholarship and well, we all mo we moved, uh, we moved. And our youngest son, Andy, he's 20 now. He, uh, he was born in Ithaca. Oh, nice. So, yeah. And <laughs> doc Dr. Hess uh, became my eventual advisor. Uh, he passed away maybe five years ago. He was 90-something, mm -hmm. but his mind was as clear uh, as it was well, 
since from when he was 25 or so. So he was a great guy. Love that. But he was a hardcore physical chemist. Okay, I, I did my PhD in a hardcore physical chemistry lab. I was the resident biologist, as it were. Mm -hmm. And I was working with uh, the dopamine transporter, which is the main target of cocaine and other abuse drugs, mm -hmm. in a cell line. I was not doing animal behavior. Actually, I never took a zoology course in my life. <laughs> huh. no, uh, because I did my master's in biochemistry, my bachelor's in general sciences. But my, my thing, as it were, I love genetics, mm -hmm. I love biochemistry, and eventually I love pharmacology when I went for my PhD, but I wasn't particularly attracted to animals, okay? Mm -hmm. so, but then, uh, midway through my PhD, I saw a paper that it's uh, from the same group as the paper that we're discussing today, uh, from uh, Dr. Rafa uh, at Temple and his collaborators about the initial description of withdrawal symptoms in planaria, cocaine-induced withdrawal symptoms in planaria. You see, mm -hmm. cocaine does not seem to induce uh, a bona fide withdrawal symptom in, uh, in, in humans. Right. I, I did remember seeing that in, in the, the paper, that they haven't been quantified in people yet. I thought that was interesting. Uh, yes. Yeah, so so the, it, there seemed to be some psychological addiction, mm -hmm. but nothing uh, extreme. But the point is that I saw that paper and I immediately went to George. And I say George because at Cornell, it's really funny because <laughs> they insist, uh, the professors insist to be treated on a first name basis, which uh, took me a lot of work to get used to. But anyway, <laughs> I, I went to George. We have to do this. The, look at this. We can apply. The, uh, and he, he was a very tall guy and I'm a very short guy. Well, <laughs> uh, I'm barely 5'7", which is oh, not, you're, you know, you're already tall but he was me. six. Yeah, but, <laughs> but he was 6'4". And he towered over me and he, he had a very deep voice. And he said, well, Lune, we are not going to do that here. When you get your, when you get your own lab. You do it. And that's precisely what I did. Challenge so that was your motivation to finish, yeah, yeah. To finish out your work? Yeah, well, I, I mean, uh, I was pretty far along in, in, in the research. I was testing several compounds, uh, mainly a certain type of local anesthetics related to cocaine, but mm -hmm. with a different chemical structure that seemed to counteract the cocaine binding properties in the cell lines. But then through a series of uh, you know, improbable events, I identified a compound called parthenolite, which I actually have tattooed in my arm. <laughs> that's, an, <laughs> I do that's another story that, <laughs> that you may want to hear about it, that seemed to uh, interact with cocaine in the cell lines. So I hypothesized that in an animal model, such as planarians, that uh, parthenolite would counteract any behavioral uh, effects. So hmm. When I was hired at Westchester University, I needed an animal model. I've been thinking about it. I sent for some planarians uh, and the rest is history. That's very wow. serendipitous, really, like uh, in yeah, every way. Yeah. I love that your advisor was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, he was like that. Actually, I, I, I love that about him because he actually kept me in the, uh, in the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, to finish on time. Uh, I would go to him with a really huge amount of experiments to do. And he will, he will go, no, 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 no. And I do this one and this one and this one. And he was right. He was right. Yeah. They, they, they often are, you know, they're advisors for a reason. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So I guess 
a question I had down at the planaria. So you had mentioned that they weren't really they weren't really very good model organisms. Is it really more that they just they have the mammalian-like neurotransmitters that makes them kind of valuable for this kind of research? Well, there's a few things that are makes them uh, particularly interesting because they were very they still are very popular mm-hmm. in regeneration and developmental biology research. For example, many planarians are the type of worms that you can cut their heads off and they will regrow a new head. Actually, if you cut the planarian in, I don't know, 200 pieces, each tiny piece, if you leave it alone, eventually will regrow in a, into a complete organism. Mm-hmm. Very few animals can do that. But uh, furthermore, planarians have an actual brain. It's, a, uh, it's not a cephalic ganglion like people say. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I'm biased because uh, <laughs> I love the thing. But they have a bona fide brain with a bilobar structure, pretty similar to the one we have. and But in contrast to us, we have a single spinal cord. Mm-hmm. Uh, planarians have a, it's not a spinal cord, it's a nerve cord. Mm-hmm. They have two, one from each hemisphere. Huh. They also, nobody knows why. And those hemispheres are connected by a ladder-like uh, structure of nerve cells. Again, nobody knows why. And they display pretty much every neurotransmitter system as mammals do. So, uh, I mean, it became to become popular uh, maybe in the 1980s. People were testing cocaine uh, in, in, and other compounds in this uh, organism. But it's only relatively recently. And I have to say, I mean, very humbly that my lab is one of those who are developing uh uh, the use of planarians as a model organism in pharmacology. Uh, not without, uh, you know, it, we don't have to dive into your research if some of it's still like under wraps. But uh, what what other drugs have you uh, exposed them to? I imagine probably medications as well as some of the uh, illicit well, drugs. Uh, we have worked on cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, the worms, the worms. And I, uh, and I have to clarify, I don't store cocaine in my lab. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, I always uh, do this disclaimer because, you know, it simplifies my life. (laughs) And uh, we have tested uh, nicotine. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, nicotine is a weird dish uh, drug because the worms do not need, they don't even have to have their own heads on to react to nicotine. Interesting. Uh, it It is really weird. You cut the worm's head off, they don't react to cocaine. But they do twitch in uh, in the presence of nicotine, so it, that's uh, another weird thing that weird thing that we have noticed, which parallels the cholinergic, the nicotinic system in humans too. Hmm. But uh, we have tested again the this parthenolite compound against cocaine, against some other uh, compounds, but it seems to be specific. Uh, against cocaine. We have done structure function relationships and we are beginning to test certain compounds that may influence regeneration. Uh, not, not abuse drugs, but compounds that are in the current pharmacological pipe, uh, not pipeline, but in the in the clinic, uh, in the clinical setting. Hmm. And uh, they seem to affect in some way the regeneration of the planarian brain. Interesting. I guess that actually kind of leads into another question because you're talking about, you know, response to these chemicals. I had reading the paper and I figured who better to ask because I am not a subject matter expert. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I said in the paper, um, they're talking about the uh, abstinence-induced or antagonist precipitate Mm -hmm. withdrawal. Uh, They made the statement, the withdrawal metric or change in planarian spontaneous locomotor velocity indicates that the withdrawal is dose-related 
to exposure concentration. And it's not due to extraneous factors like pH, osmolarity, temperature. So Mm -hmm. why is that? Why is it that, or how do they make this statement that the change in locomotor velocity is due to the drug and not because of some outside, like environmental factor? Okay, because what they did in the previous paper is that they just measured how fast the planarians moved, okay? They they ran their appropriate controls and they, they, I don't know, like 10 centimeters per minute, something like that, okay? So they gave cocaine to the worms. They allowed them to soak in the cocaine uh, for a while. When they took the cocaine away, the worms uh, slowed down in the absence of cocaine, which is kind of the opposite of what happens in rats. Uh, Cocaines speed up rats. Mm. Okay, but uh, they interpreted that change in uh, motile uh, velocity as a withdrawal symptom. And then they used that as an extension. And of course, what they said about pH and everything, they tested several uh, pH uh, values Mm -hmm. and other, you know, uh, media. So and they actually ruled out any other uh, influence. Then they moved to the paper that we are discussing today in which they they show these really weird uh, movements like the head bob, corkscrew, yeah. <laughs> uh, things like that. And and the yeah. funny thing, yeah, I, I mean, uh, the, I have seen that uh, in the lab. And actually, when we replicated those experiments uh, with parthenolite, parthenolite uh, inhibits those type of responses. Interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say, I'm like, they, they, they noticed or at least they marked down at least six different behaviors. Um, that were considered atypical in the paper. And those were yes. head bobbing where they would lift the head up and down. They had corkscrewing, which is where they're physically twisting their bottle uh, body into the shape of a corkscrew. They had tail twisting, which was just twisting their tail into like a corkscrew. They had head swinging where they're kind of rotating their head in a circle. They had squirming. Were there any other atypical behaviors or movements that you noticed in your lab or research or that, that Rafa uh, yes, and Desai uh, didn't? Well, in other papers, they actually notice a couple more behaviors that I have noticed mm-hmm. uh, in our lab too. Sometimes they, uh, the tail gets, uh, ho- it holds onto the bottom of the uh, of the container mm-hmm. of the petri dish or something, and then they raise the upper part of the body and look around as if they were a cobra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, it's really, it's really, they're really cute uh, critters. Uh, okay, and, and they sometimes as if. Of course, I'm personifying them, right. but it's as if they were looking for the drug, uh, uh, as it were. Uh, I mean, it's uh, this kind, these little guys that are, uh, I'm quoting a researcher in the 60s, an endless source of fascination. I completely agree. I, the first time I ever saw a planarian was in a, my undergrad during an invertebrate zoology class. And it was just like, all right, now cut this worm in half. And it's like, all right, we'll come back in a week. And now we've got two worms and it yep. they're so interesting. <laughs> yes, they are. They it's, are. It's crazy to me too, because like all these weird erratic uh, withdrawal behaviors, like they kind of remind you of what you see in like, you know, I, I hate to bring it up because it's like super Hollywoodization and stuff, but like you see in like movies where people go on these like crazy cocaine vendors, then they don't have it anymore. Yes. And they go through these like crazy erratic behaviors and it's just, it's really interesting to me that you see the same kind of 
behaviors or the same kind of observations made when you're watching these worms that are going through the same thing. It's funny too, yeah. considering like, as you said, it's Hollywoodified that humans don't really have those quantified uh, uh, withdrawal symptoms that the worms are going through. Yeah, at least for cocaine, but right. they, they got it for some other things. Right, that is so, true. Uh, and, and that's part of the the importance of uh, working these worms because there's two things. Uh, if we learn aspects of addiction or withdrawal or even toxicity uh, of the drugs mm -hmm. in worms, that can have some relevance to humans. Okay, so that, that's one thing. Second, planarians, they have this uh, unparall unparalleled ability to regenerate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... And they do not only regenerate their brains, they regenerate their brains correctly. Right. Uh, okay. So if you imagine uh, if we could do that for people that uh, sadly with uh, brain damage mm -hmm. because of a car accident or, uh, I don't know, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, uh, uh, right? If we learn how to do that, uh, that would be even incredibly uh, life-changing for so many people. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I know this to a listener, this might sound like science fiction, but like human humanity has been trying this for a while now. I think like right after World War Two, the U.S. government was trying to develop like regeneration using uh, salamander stem cells. And like mm -hmm. in one of our other papers, we talked about how they are using um, stem cells from the African clawed frog to create uh, living robots, essentially, that could be used as like drug delivery systems that can't necessarily be damaged and it's like there's some really amazing things going out that like oh yeah science is so important like i know it sounds crazy like hey we're gonna cut worms in half and get them addicted to cocaine it's like i promise you there is a purpose behind this like we're not just screwing around it's, it's oh, all yeah, becoming yeah. like you know it's all coming front and center too because uh i don't necessarily want to name drop on the podcast but a certain amazonian executive just you know was on the news for effectively trying to buy immortality so i think mit yep. did something about uh like rat blood they found that when they transferred young rat blood into older rats that the older rats saw like some sort of um like healing in their brain development and stuff like their their brain kind of semi-de-aged and it's just like I kind of worry about the, you know, the aftermarket, black market uh, uh, consequences of, of that type of study. Yep. No, and I, and I would like to comment on the skepticism mm -hmm. of people, uh, of some people that may think that worm research is not uh, worth it. Uh, sometimes even scientists are like that. Uh, uh, may I tell like uh, uh, something that happened to me when I submitted uh, certain results? Please do. So that we'd love to hear it. Okay. Tear so, reviewer two apart. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, 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 it was probably reviewer two, yeah. Uh, because uh, when I started to do the experiments on, on parthenolite and whatever, mm -hmm. I uh, we found that, uh, you know, parthenolite counteracted the behavioral effects on planarium. Mm -hmm. we, we eventually, we published it. But before we published it, I got their reviews back. And one review, uh, reviewer number two, uh, <laughs> I'm quoting because I, I don't remember who the person, uh, I'm actually, actually, I never knew who the person mm -hmm. was. I still didn't. Uh, but the quote was, let's be real. These are worms. And that didn't, you know, I said some unbecoming things in Spanish. 
but then, you know, eventually uh, I addressed the reviewers' concerns, mm. the papers were published and whatever. But then in 2011, we uh, published a joint paper with neurophysiologists uh, extending the results of parthenolite in rats. Amazing. And guess what? Parthenolite works on rats too. Uh, and I really hope reviewer two saw that paper. <laughs> And we uh, and we are working on things. I mean, I don't mean to be petty. I'm just just being a little facetious here, because uh, just to illustrate that skepticism and sometimes even unwarranted skepticism, it's uh, happens to all of us. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, not, not just uh, people who don't know anything about science, but you know. Yeah, I mean, as in science, I I believe like you know, it, an amount of skepticism is healthy, is good, but that. That seems like Absolutely. it goes a little bit beyond skepticism. That seems like it, it kind of trends into closed-mindedness or short-sightedness. Yeah, and, uh, I tend to agree. And, and that's something we kind of talked about in our, our first episode is that, like, we talked about these head transplants they did back in Russia uh, in, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, it seems insane, especially to people at that time. But then you realize, oh, well, that actually laid all the groundwork for limb transplants, for organ transplants. And it's like, yeah, it's you can't be the naysayer for your entire life, right? You gotta mm-hmm. kind of move with the science as it evolves, and like this research, like you said, is pivotal. Like it's making real motions in the world of uh, pharmacology and pharmaceuticals. Like this could save people's lives someday. Yes, yeah, and, and actually, that that's you know something it brings me to something else I wanted to ask. Um, just because, you know, I'm a spy, I'm a big mental health advocate, especially with everything, you know, going on, it's become, starting to become more publicized. Do you think that this kind of research, because I know they're talking about, you know, like dopamine agonists and dopamine receptors. Um, and, and, you know, as most people know, or if anybody doesn't know, dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters that's kind of important to good mental health. Do you think uh, research like this could also help us get a better understanding of why things like that happen, why mental health disorders happen, and maybe... Uh- Helps make some headway there. Absolutely. I can give you a specific example. Uh, For instance, anxiety. Uh, Mm. Okay. So uh, many of us, uh, and I'm full disclosure, uh, I get anxiety. Uh, Sometimes I get panic attacks. There's no shame in that, uh, people out there. And uh, we can actually use planarians as a model of anxiety. But but again, we have to take that with a big grain of salt because... I mean, you cannot ask the planarians, uh, are you, do you feel anxious? Do you feel anxious today? <laughs> uh, exactly. how, how are you feeling today? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but we have a, a relatively simple behavioral assay that can tell us a little bit about that. It's the uh, light and dark preference assay. They do that for rats uh, a lot, and they use it as an anxiety indicating uh, assay. Basically, we put the planarians in a container uh, half covered with dark black electrical tape, mm-hmm. okay? And we'd run our control experiments counting uh, over a period of, let's say, five minutes. How many seconds do the planarians spend in the light side or in the dark side? I'm sound, sounding a little Star Wars right <laughs> now, but you know what I mean. Okay, so under normal circumstances, planarians like to be in the dark side because that's a defensive mechanism. Mm -hmm. You are a small animal. You are not fast. You are not big. You are not venomous. Okay, what do you do? You hide. (laughs) So they will prefer a dark environment on the rocks, uh, things like that. So when, uh, I haven't done these experiments, but some other people have in other labs. 
when they give uh, planarians anti-anxiety medications like uh, Prozac, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the famous, uh, uh, you know, antidepressant, mm -hmm. they shift, uh, they shift their preference more significantly, statistically, more towards the light side than the dark side without any decrease in motility. Okay. So it's not that they are becoming slower and they got stuck in the light side. No, no, they move uh, with the same speed and everything. It's just that they don't display the marked preference for the covered side. And people interpret that as uh, an anti-anxiety effect uh, of, of, of fluoxetine, which is, uh, I shouldn't have said the brand name, uh, <laughs> in, in, in planarians. Guess what, Lamoxidine, so, you owe us money now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to blame you guys. No, it's so, fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, I'll accept this blame. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, that, that's really interesting to me. And that's actually kind of why I asked and why I do try to you know, advocate for mental health because I suffer from the same thing and it kind of sucks. So, you know, any research that, you know, could further our understanding of stuff like that is just really interesting to me. And this seems absolutely. Um, to yeah, listen, if things. I. If I may, again, I mean, this semester, for example, we came back to in-person teaching uh, at my university, and it was hard for the students, but it was hard for me as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I, because I, I, I had to, to deal with students who got, you know, panicky in mm -hmm. the classroom. I got panicky in the classrooms uh, at some points. They never noticed. My biggest class is like 250 students, mm -hmm. and I'm proud to say that they ne never noticed. But... Uh, what I'm trying to say is that anxiety, depression, mental health, it's something that it's uh, pretty much, well, it's sad, but it's pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. anything that we can do to help pharmacologically or, or otherwise, I think it's worth it. I, I totally agree. This is agree. totally off topic, but like literally I was openly talking about my mental health on Instagram a couple of days ago. And mm -hmm. one of my friends was like, hey, uh, I've decided to go back into therapy too. And I'm like, great. I'm, I'm super happy for you. Like, Excellent. like, uh, the pandemic, you know, not that we talk about the pandemic much on the podcast, but like it's yeah. been hell on a lot of people. Like, uh, I, I started <laughs> having panic attacks this year for the first time in my life. Like I've been depressed for years, but like, this is the first time yeah, I've started uh, having uh, like an anxiety disorder. And I was just like, you know what? It's, it's time. It is time to get back yes. into therapy and take care of myself. And I really advocate that if you listener out there feel any sort of way that, you feel like your mental state is in decline or that you could be doing better or you're anxious, like talk to somebody, you know, seek yes, out the help. Uh, you need. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I second the motion. And, and again, uh, I, I may add things uh, will pass. So I mean, but you need to get help. Absolutely. This has been our ad hoc PSA <laughs> for the episode. They seem to come about randomly. Cue the morning um, no sound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just snorted. Did it come? <laughs> I, I, I laughed on it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So it's it's good though. It's 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 nice to see that. That's one of the things we like doing on the podcast. We we can see, and it's you know maybe not. In this case, I think it is pretty evident that you know this is important. This research has real application. Mm. It's not just as funny as it sounds. It's not just getting worms real high and then seeing what happens <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. Although we did learn that if you want to open an illegal underground planarian racing, uh, you know, circuit, you should get your 
planarians addicted to cocaine to speed them up. <laughs> well, uh, I told you guys to keep my secret. <laughs> Sometimes things just slip out. Yeah, you can't trust anybody these days. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that out. <laughs> cut it. Cut. Um, but like, like, like we were talking about before the podcast even started. I've I've watched videos of uh, politicians. I won't name them. I'm not a fan of them going through NIH grants and just saying like, here's this, you know, paper or research grant that received, you know, thousands of dollars of government money to expose, you know, flightless birds to cocaine. And I'm like, well, just because you don't understand, you know, where, where that, that research is aimed at like going, doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. And like, this is one of those situations where like, if you knew nothing, if I just came to you and like, hey, we're talking about worms that are addicted to cocaine, you'd be like, why would you addict a worm to cocaine? Like, what what benefit is that? And it's like, well, here's how it responds. Here's a drug that actually helps counteract the <laughs> those symptoms that you would see with cocaine addiction. And yes. here's how it may apply to humans someday. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, absolutely. Like, I mean, like what, we were saying what, earlier, we can't yeah. be the naysayers. Yep. So I guess then, I mean, I I found this paper really interesting. Um, but as I mean, as the as the subject matter expert, is the you know, before we we round out the discussion of the papers, is there anything you know that we didn't mention that you thought was important, or that you know any further or closing comments on the paper you wanted to make? Well, just that I eventually got to know Dr. Rafa. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know Dr. Didn't meet Dr. Desai. He graduated and and left the university at the time. But Dr. Rafa uh, was uh, actually he's retired, but, mm. but he says he's retired, but he's working more than <laughs> ever. Uh, uh, he was a professor of pharmacology at Temple School of Pharmacy, mm. and I got to meet him. I got the honor to meeting him. And we collaborated in a couple of papers. Uh, and I mean, he's a, a, a very nice guy. So, Bob, if you are listening to this, uh, thank you for helping my career. Uh, wh- what can I tell you? Thanks. And that really goes for anybody out there listening. If you're in the sciences or maybe you want to be in the sciences, meet these people that are doing this groundbreaking research or re- research that might even just seem wacky or interesting because it might lead you somewhere. <laughs> Or Absolutely. Even, even if you're a fan of their work, yeah. feel free to reach out. Absolutely. That's how we got in contact yeah. with Onay. Yeah. And, and even if you see a paper that you cannot get because of a paywall or something like that, email the researchers. Uh, we'll gladly send you the paper for free. And it's legal. Yeah. Uh, okay. Because we are allowed to send reprints of our papers to whomever wants to. Uh, to wants to read it. So, yeah, don't be inhibited about asking. You know, my philosophy in life, if, if you don't ask, the answer will always be no. So true, <laughs> right? True. Yep. The, the worst they can say is no at the yes. end of the day. like, And that's okay. You'll find a new person. <laughs> There's so yeah. many. Like a, a lot of people think scientists are closed off and stuffy and they don't want to talk to anybody. It's like the opposite is true. Scientists mm-hmm. want to <laughs> tell everyone about their work. They're just afraid no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, you'll find, despite how closed off you might think a scientist might be, I guarantee you they're going to be excited if you come to them with real interest in what they're working on. Yeah, they'll on. talk your ear it's, off. Yeah, we guarantee that. I mean, the, the, as with in, human nature is like that, nature is like that, you will see a couple of, we are not very nice mm-hmm. people, but that happens in any profession. But for the most part, we are essentially nerds who wants to who want to tell the world the things that we like. Yeah. 
Can't, can't agree more. So that has been our paper by Rafa and Desai. Highly recommended. You check it out. It's got some funny little illustrations that I absolutely loved of the flatworms with big googly eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they're beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that actually really segues very nicely in what, I, what we wanted to talk about next. Uh, scientists sharing their work. Oh, hey, you recently have a book come out. Would you like to tell us more about it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, it actually... Uh, came out uh, as a direct consequence of what I do. <laughs> but uh, I, it's, it's not my first book, but it's, uh, uh, you know, the story is that about in about maybe 2012, I've been toying with the idea of writing for the popular uh, public for, for a while, okay? So I, I didn't have an agent. I still don't. But if there's an agent out there <laughs> who wants to take a chance on me, well, call me. <laughs> uh, have my people contact you and my, by my people, I mean me. So uh, <laughs> Get on Twitter. It's no, the easiest way to get a hold of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I wanted to, to, to write for the general public and I didn't know how. So I educated myself. What do, did I do? I did my research. Most people uh, advise to begin blogging. And, and that's what I, to begin blogging, sorry. And that's what I did. I did my uh, web my website, Bold Scientist. Uh, it's boldscientist.com, and I started blogging there. The first few uh, blog posts were horrendous, uh, but I left there for historical uh, reasons. Uh, you know, but it's good to uh, see the journey. I got, yes, I know. <laughs> I, I got better uh, uh, with time, and then I decided. Well, I am taking a chance. I'm writing a proposal. And I wanted to, to publish a book about planarians in pharmacology and neuroscience, right? Uh, the title was horrendous. I proposed to title it The Neuronal Worm. <laughs> okay? Eventually, a person, an, anony an anonymous reviewer, who I knew afterwards what was Dr. Rafa himself, <laughs> uh, proposed The First Brain. And uh, I sent it to publishers and Oxford University Press picked it up. That was my first book. Love it. I use planarians as an excuse to explain pharmacology and neuroscience. Okay. Mm -hmm. Later on, I got a little, you know, empowered, uh, as they say nowadays. <laughs> and I uh, wrote another proposal for other books. And uh, I wrote a, a second book called Strange Survivors, this time for a publisher called Bembella Books. Okay which were the publishers of my current book, all right? So I'm just telling the cliff notes of the story. If I'm talking too much, well, just cut me out. But no, that was exactly what we wanted to hear. This is exactly okay. what I want to hear. So Strange Survivors was about weird strategies that organisms, uh, uh, you know, have to survive. Uh, that's beyond paws or claws, things like that. I, talk, uh, I talked about bioelectricity. I mm -hmm. talked about venoms, things like that. All right, so it was published and everything. So. And then I began thinking about my own research and what I did. And I began researching ways that animals, uh, how other animals, other than planarians, react to drugs. Mm -hmm. We all know the aneg uh, anecdotes about dogs that get a stomachache and they go uh, chew on some grass mm -hmm. uh, outside. Or we have heard about the bees that can get drunk or birds that can get drunk. Okay, so I began researching uh, a book like that, and uh, I learned so much, and I had so much fun, so much non-pharmacological fun, fun uh, let's just say, <laughs> and 
And the book uh, came out in November and it's titled Drunk Flies and Stone Dolphins, A Trip Through the World of Animal Intoxication. Okay. So, and uh, in there, I explore aspects of animals that actually seek out uh, substances for apparent uh, psychoactive uh, or medicinal purposes. But I also explored scientists who gave drugs to mm -hmm. animals, just uh, like me. I, I, I've read through the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. You bring Sorry. you bring things down to uh, just such a super easy to understand level. It feels very conversational, very natural, which I really appreciate. These these Thanks. types of science books are, are are my favorite because like I never felt like at one point in time I need to reach for Google or I need to you know break out an old textbook from you know my undergrad or my graduate degree. Like it it, it was I. Every, all the information was there. It was present. You, you explain it, even the more complex things in a way that it's easy for anybody to understand. Oh, man, that's high praise. Thank you. And I can I can really appreciate, you know, some of the making it relatable to your average reviewer. I think at, at one point you compared what elephants go through to uh, Star Trek, what the Vulcans <laughs> go through. <laughs> and uh, I, I get as as a sci fi nerd, but really as an all kinds of nerd. I, I can appreciate those kind of comparisons because, you know, they they bring and, and that's kind of something we try to do on the podcast, too. They bring a subject that at its highest form is very complex and can be very hard to understand. And you bring it down to a level that the average person can understand. And it's no, fascinating stuff. And I, I can really appreciate it. And it's thank you. Too. And uh, well, I, I tend to be rather funny, but people <laughs> say because I, I, I have to thank uh, my students uh, here because. One of the classes that I teach at the university is biological science for non-majors, mm -hmm. okay? So I get majors from all over the university, people who are not interested in biology, not the slightest bit, okay? So I have to, I found ways over the years to make it interesting for them, okay? And I use this type of comparisons, uh, for example, to explain enzyme kinetics, I use Legos, yeah. <laughs> okay? Uh, you know, and I uh, I love telling dad jokes uh, and things like that because they get distracted when I'm explaining, I don't know, the Krebs cycle, uh, all right? So that's nothing that I don't really, anybody enjoys learning about the Krebs cycle uh, when they <laughs> learn it for the first time. I, okay? I got a master's degree and I still can't remember the Krebs cycle. So, exactly. you know, freshman so, biologist... You're with me. Trust me. And non-majors. And non-majors. <laughs> right. Okay. So, and I try to be as entertaining as possible. And I credit that experience with my approach to write the books, popular science books. I have to emphasize that I do it in a very respectful way. I agree. I don't, yeah, I don't patronize my readers. I don't, because I really think that anybody has the capacity, if they're interested enough, to understand science, if properly explained, that is. Completely agree. I I also love at, at the start of the book too. You even have kind of a little preface, just saying like, "Hey, I understand that this book is kind of funny, but this isn't to make light of anybody's situation." Like, yes, society is set up in a way where ad addiction is prevalent, unfortunately, and the uh, ways to get help are not as prevalent. It, it, it's it's so much easier to be addicted than it is to be helped. Yeah, unfortunately. Thank you for. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that because, uh, I mean, I wanted to make the book entertaining, but I didn't mm. uh, want to make light of a person addicted yeah. uh, uh, to something. I, okay? Completely agree. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was Sorry. just going to say, your, your book never, I never felt like it was punching down on anybody. Like, 
Okay. You know, it, but thank you. I appreciate yeah, exactly. That. Um, so actually, you know, you had you had actually started to share a little bit of one of the other questions I wanted to ask you about your book when you know you're telling your the story about teaching non majors science and how that mm -hmm. helped shape your writing. But you know, as you know, as someone who's been around the block with scientific papers, you always whether you want to or not, wind up taking a look at like the bibliography <laughs> and the index, right? And there's there's a lot there. So one of the things that both Sean and I both wanted to ask you about is, can you talk to us a little bit about what your process was mm -hmm. like, you know, for researching this book? Because I can't imagine that there was, was anything other than a ton of work for you to go through. Oh, well, it was, but I enjoyed it immensely because, well, uh, that part was a direct extension of my scientific training, okay? Mm -hmm. I am fastidious about uh, documenting what I say, uh, right? Uh, I want to, uh, to try that whatever I say or write in this case is accurate at the time uh, that I'm writing it based on references and that I am not appropriating the words of anybody else. Yes. Uh, okay, so that's uh, uh, those two guiding lights are essential for what I do, okay? And actually, for, for the later part of the book, when I talk about the supposedly drug uh, dolphins, mm. I, I was a little, you know, that uh, that was a little frustrating to me because there's no, no actual papers yeah, about that. Yeah, it's yet. so hard to find anything yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, all I can do is speculate, and I think I was clear in that sense, but for every other single thing, I tried to document it. I read the actual mm. papers. I, I, and I put it there. I, I enjoyed it. I, I'm probably one of the few people who actually enjoyed writing a dissertation <laughs> uh, be, be, because I, I wrote it in exactly the same way. Uh, I mean, documenting everything because at the least uh, I want to, I, I mean, the last thing I want is that somebody would say, well, Pagan wrote this and no, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, okay, because I want to give accurate information. But at the same time, uh, I want to allow someone to say, well, I want to know more about, I don't know, snails on amphetamines. Right. Okay. So, uh, and, uh, and believe it, there, there are studies about that. And, and I try to put the papers for whomever wants to, to understand it. Love that. Uh, one of my favorite uh, parts of the book was um, the zoopharmacology part. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you share a story about, I think chimpanzees using millipede toxins as uh, uh, like bug spray, if I'm remembering well, correctly. That, that, that's one of the things that they do because uh, we have to start from the perspective that we didn't begin using drugs just because we felt like right. it, okay? Mm -hmm. We most likely learned it from animals. Uh, okay, mm -hmm. and and by that is that I don't know a person in uh, I don't know fifty thousand years ago saw a chimpanzee eating a a particular plant and they noticed that they wouldn't have I don't know diarrhea anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, okay, so uh, that that that's one thing, and also some anecdotes about how people discover coffee. Uh, Those okay? goats, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was apparently goats uh, that this goat herder in Ethiopia noticed that when uh, his goats nibbled on a certain plant, especially the berries of that plant, they got jittery. Okay. <laughs> and then, well, Starbucks, I mean, uh, coffee was born. <laughs> Starbucks was <laughs> <it> money. <laughs> well, well I, I mean, 
I have to say personally, I'm very grateful to these ghosts and their herders. Yeah, for because sure. Because I don't know if I'd be able to get through my day no, without no, them. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And just like that, I mean, uh, there's every indi indication that we learn of many drugs that we use nowadays just by observing animals. Uh, and what they did, they they did practical pharmacology without any knowledge of chemistry. Uh, how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense too, right? Because that was kind of one of the first ways we really had to learn about the world around us. Just observe it and see yep. what happens. Yep. So with um, your first book, The First Brain, you mentioned you had trouble kind of nailing down a, a good nickname. How many passes at naming uh, drunk flies and stone dolphins did you take? Actually, that one, I got it from the first try. I, I think you did uh, well on the first try. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, once I started writing and, and I discovered, okay, uh, I, let, I learned about the flies and maybe we can talk about that in a moment, but uh, I learned about the dolphins. So, well, drunk flies and stone dolphins, that's it. <laughs> and then I, I, I talked to the editor and, and she loved it. Uh, hi, Alexa. I want to to say hello to Alexa and Laurel. Those are my my editors. And uh, I mean, listen, children listen to your editors. They know what they're doing. <laughs> and, but they liked it. And, and and you know, you know that's how it happened. <laughs> Love it. Serendipitous. Yes. So so, tell us about the fruit flies. I mean, you you can't walk into any science lab in the world probably without somebody being there researching drosophila which are fruit flies <laughs> absolutely absolutely uh, drosophila are the the main biological tools uh, for geneticists yeah. uh, and they have been for a while but i bet you didn't know that planarian was where a close second no i i genuinely would not have known that i, I was yes because was always at the front of my mind oh yeah well uh morgan the guy who actually did, developed uh, Drosophila mm. as a tool for genetics. He was toying between planarians and Drosophila to do his research. Uh, okay. But then uh, he noticed that uh, it was harder to deal with the genetics of the planarian. He chose Drosophila and his story was made. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, I just wanted to give those, that tidbit of information out there. But uh, yeah. Uh, Drosophila have been using genetics for the longest time, and they are extensively using uh, behavioral pharmacology. But there's a, a couple of many things that I learned about them, specifically their response to alcohol. Uh, that's one of the things that, uh, <laughs> that, that prompt me to put them in the title. When uh, male Drosophila fail to get, uh, let's say, female companionship, <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. Uh, they prefer fermented fruit as opposed to fresh fruit. <laughs> uh, okay? Just like you or I probably did uh, in the years past. You know, you got to drown your sadness in some fermented <laughs> yeah, fruit sometimes. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and it's weird. Uh, it's really weird because uh, you would think that that would be a, a high advanced behavioral response because we're humans and we feel sadness uh, and all these type of things. But I mean, at some point, how can we say that a fly is not sad because they couldn't get what they want? <laughs> uh, 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 okay, so uh, and 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 they have done uh, well. I also document several other things in the in in the uh, with Drosophila mm. because they did a bunch of things. They even invented a contraption called the inebriometer. 
<laughs> okay, uh, which is a contraption that can separate Drosophila under uh, in groups like the ones that could get drunk really fast, the ones that take a lot longer to do it, the ones that would never get drunk, things like that. Hmm. There, I mean, clearly there must be some sort of evolutionary perk for uh, alcohol resistance, one would assume, right? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, and one of the main, uh, you know, candidates, it's uh, nutrition. Uh, nutrition. Because uh, in, there are several hypotheses that they, they propose that, that animals initially, you know, uh, uh, selectively ate fermented fruits for their nutritional value because alcohol is uh, highly nutritious. That's why people, when they are on a diet, they, they have to give out, uh, uh, I mean, uh, they have to avoid alcohol mm -hmm. uh, for calorie counting and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But if an animal becomes resistant to the intoxicating effects of alcohol, okay, and there's animals that are actually able to do that, mm -hmm. Uh, they can actually take full advantage of the nutritional uh, value of alcohol. And that uh, hypothesis is called the drunken monkey hypothesis. Love it. <laughs> Perfectly <laughs> named. Love the name. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's, uh, there's academic books written about that. Uh, okay. So that's a, uh, and, and uh, I mean, there's no way to prove that that's how it started. Mm. Uh, uh, for humans or even with animals like 50,000 years ago. We have, we have no way of, of saying, when did we start using uh, cannabis? Right. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, because that's uh, in the, lost in the proverbial sense of time. But we do know that uh, the ancient Egyptians, uh, and even before, when you uh, look at uh, ancient pottery and analyze it chemically, there's residue of things that we recognize today as wine and beer. Yeah. I, I I was listening to another podcast about like um they're they're actively trying to recreate some of like the ancient drinks and stuff yep. using like uh you know genetic markers and stuff and like okay it's this type of barley and this was probably the fermentation process like yes really uh, actually there's uh, some ideas that uh, actually blame uh, Drosophila for uh, initiating these uh, types of activities because when people were uh, you know, in, in, in agriculture, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, they didn't seem to uh, begin to, I don't know, cultivate uh, barley or, mm -hmm. or wheat be to ferment it. Uh, okay, so it was just wheat. I mean, it's nutritional mm -hmm. again. But people, some people think that since fruit flies are attracted to these type of things, they were uh, fruit flies that contaminated uh, this type of you know, uh, agricultural crops mm -hmm. with yeast, okay? Mm -hmm. And they and that uh, those things got wet, and, well, they fermented, and, again, the rest is history. That's, that's interesting to think of fruit flies as pollinating with yeast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, like, because, like, that, that's definitely something I, I could totally believe evolutionary just came about over time, you know? Fruit flies now have to put less forward or put forward less energy to digest the food because it's already fermented. It's already partially broken yes. down. The sugars are higher. The nutrition's up. Like it's, it's a strict benefit benefit to carry around your own yeast yeah. and just, uh, yeah. Oh, and I remember something when you said evolution, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know when uh, this episode will be out, uh, assuming that you still want to, it uh, to be out when you're putting this out. <laughs> this but, is absolutely going out. No question. <laughs> Today's uh, November 24th, the anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species by Darwin. Oh. Uh, 
I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. I don't know how I know. <laughs> I need that, you on my but... pub trivia team because I wouldn't. Even know. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. So here's to here's to Chuck. Here's to Chuck. Your pub trivia team, powered yeah. by Fruit Flies. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so that's that's really that's really interesting. Um, but speaking of interesting things, I actually I also want to ask you when when you're doing the research for your book, um, and you don't have to think too much about this answer. But was there any particular, you know, story, paper, anything you you read that really still stands out in your mind as, wow, this is really weird? I'll probably say the hallucinating sea slugs. The nudibranch? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, okay, so... Uh, there are certain sea slugs, which, uh, I mean, they're not so different from planaria, and some of them are very beautiful. They're, they're called nudibranchs. And uh, there was a study in which they presented the hypothesis that amphetamines will um, induce a halluc- uh, hallucination response in sea slugs. Huh. Okay, huh. so... And the way they did it is that they studied their behavior, okay, meaning that uh, when they were, uh, like, startled Mm -hmm. by uh, a pretend predator or something, they will uh, swim away in, like, a burst of uh, jet water, uh, something like that, okay? So, and then, to make the long story short, they were able to recreate that uh, type of behavior with amphetamines, Wow, interesting. Okay, so, and uh, that's that's mind blowing to me. And they actually, when you read the paper, uh, it's very really cool, really cool, well done because they uh, identified separately several circuits in the brain of the nudibranchs that actually induce that type of behavior, and then they dissected the brains uh, and they just tested the brains. Uh, in electrophysiological studies, I assume, and they were able to recreate it, uh, those pathways, uh, if, if mm-hmm. I, something like that, uh, with uh, amphetamines. So that, that that's one of them. A second one that actually was kind of funny is that uh, the octopuses on uh, ecstasy. Yes. Actually, that's exactly the one that I thought of <laughs> after you said sea slugs on amphetamines. I was like, and that kind of reminds me of the octopi on ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I should have said octopi, but actually it's, I read somewhere that As the resident marine right. biologist, yeah, 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 octopuses yeah, yeah, that, and octopodes is the most correct. Yeah, that, that, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, so, but uh, anyway, that type of research uh, took advantage of the fact that uh, octopodes, <laughs> okay, <Yeah. laughs> are are uh, really curmudgeons. They they're antisocial. Uh, I mean, uh, even when they are reproducing, they don't like it very mm-hmm. much. They don't seem to like it very much. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the story about uh, octopodes or octopi, octopuses that that actually. Uh, they have the, a specialized arm mm-hmm. that they use for reproduction, and sometimes males rip it off their own bodies yeah. and throw it at the female. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of the ultimate expression of do something to yourself, <laughs> as it were. So, 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 did the MDMA make them more sociable? Actually, they seem to be more social, sociable, uh, or at least more mellow. Interesting. Uh, but. Uh, Another thing that I learned is that they recently discovered at least a population of uh, octopuses who or 
who seem to be social. They live in a community. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that I didn't know about. Uh, and that's part of the, I mean, to the in the bigger picture, that's how much fun I had with this book, learning about these type of things. It, it's like every topic just opens a new door. And it's like, oh, here's some papers on, uh, you know, dolphins on LSD. Oh, by the way, this same doctor also put elephants on LSD. You know, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it, 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 it all kind of just rolls and rolls and rolls yes. and keeps going. And like, you're just opening countless new doors and discovering all sorts of new weird experiments people have been doing over the yes. years. Uh, I mean, there's even another uh, scientist who actually tried to actually did, he didn't try. He got elephants drunk. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's more dangerous than a that a than a grumpy bull elephant? <laughs> a, a, a drunk, drunk one? grumpy bull. Exactly. Uh, that takes courage for sure. You know, that certainly. I feel like that certainly takes walking a fine line. Yeah, <laughs> love yeah. to see the ethics committee on that one. Oh yeah, no, that, that wouldn't happen now. <laughs> not at all. Not, not at all. all. So it it's been lovely chatting with you. We're we're getting to the end of the podcast. Usually about now. We go over to our featured creature. So I got a special one for us this week. And it is from the Zoological Society of London. They recently did a paper on the River Thames. I know it's it reads like it's Thames, but my British friends would fight me if I said Thames and not Thames. Uh, thank you for educating <laughs> me because I really didn't know. So for the last 64 years, the River Thames has been uh, considered biologically dead, which means it just could not support life life at all. There's um, a few other rivers in the world that are also considered biologically dead. But good news, it's coming back to life. People, they've found uh, recently eels, seals. Also, there were eels addicted to cocaine, or at least that's the rumor. Maybe we'll look into that for a future episode. <laughs> Uh, because okay, let me look into it <laughs> <laughs> as well as seahorses. But they also discovered there are a species of venomous sharks living in the Thames. Um, John, I thought you said this was good news. You said this good is great news, news. and then follow it with coke addicted eels and venomous sharks. <laughs> as a marine yeah. biologist, this is great news. <laughs> I mean, we talk about it before recording, and it still blows my mind. <laughs> so, uh, this species of shark in question is called the spur dog. Spur dog shark or Squalus acanthias. And they're one of the very few uh, venomous fishes in and around the UK. Um, they're a species of dog shark that have these little spines right in front of, they have two uh, dorsal fins. So they have one in the front and one closer to their tail. And just before each of those fins, they have this cartilaginous spike that comes up <laughs> out of them <laughs> that secretes a venom. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you were to get pricked by that, uh, you'd be looking at some swelling in the area, some moderate discomfort, but there are venomous sharks. This one's fortunately small, so you don't have to worry. Not that I expect anybody out there is going swimming in the Thames, considering it was biologically dead for 64 yeah. years. <laughs> uh, I don't recommend it anyway. Uh. Uh, but yeah, they're only about three feet long, 93 centimeters, 92 centimeters, give or take. So t don't worry too much. And that's that's our featured creature this week, the spur dog creature, shark. In case you needed more nightmare fuel. Uh, <laughs> thank cute. you for this, guys. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just want to say, you know, personally on behalf of the podcast, and I thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It was a lot of fun. It was really great to get, uh, you know, an expert 
um, perspective on the paper we we're discussing. And even more than that, it was just really great to hear, you know, all the stories you added, everything about your book. So again, personally, and on behalf of the podcast, thank you so much for joining us this week. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure and honor. And I am simply happy to to have gained a couple of new friends, if I, yeah. if I may. Absolutely. And, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, thank you for indulging me in my uh, nerdiness. <laughs> thank you for indulging us as well. well. I mean, thank you for great. sharing all of it. <laughs> Would you like to plug your own podcast? You're, you're the host of the Bald Scientist podcast. Yes, I, I, I have the, just like in the blog, the first few episodes were kind of horrendous because I didn't know how to edit or stuff, but I, uh, but I did it. So it's the Bald Scientist podcast, and you can find more information at baldscientist.com. And I'm very active on social media, particularly Twitter. Uh, and guess what? It's at Bold Scientist. Too easy. <laughs> Too easy. Keep it consistent, right? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, and if I may, yes, if I may, case. just a final thing. Uh, you know that nowadays we don't do many book signings. Uh, actually, we don't do book signings at all. Right, uh, right, right. Uh, for these type of things. But a friend of mine gave me a very good idea that I can order like these book plates with the design that I want, a space for dedication. And if any of your dear listeners uh, buy the book and sends me a, a quick email or something, I'll be more than happy to send you the, the signed book plate. I really Great. appreciate yeah. that. that. That's lovely. Yeah. Listeners, if you want to pick up the book, it is called Drunk Flies and Stone Dolphins. You can find it wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I recommend supporting your local bookstore, especially during the holidays. Um, check it out. It's a great read. It's very fun. I loved it. What more do you need? <laughs> Thank you for your kind words, guys. As always, our intro song, our intro and outro song is by my younger brother, Jesse Rikachevsky, or Jesse Ricka on social media. You can also follow us on social media at Weird Bio Show on all social media platforms or check out our website, www.weirdbioshow.com. If you have any questions you'd like asked on the podcast, just send us an email at weirdbiologyshow at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to send a paper you'd like to see on the show someday. What am I missing? We don't have a book. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave that in there. What else am I missing? We don't have a book. So once again, everybody, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time for more Weird Biology. Bye. Bye.